Hi, and welcome to Alethe Bible Fellowship. I'm Pastor Colin, and we're talking about conflict this month again. In week three, we're going to be exploring offense and loss and basic behavioral things that are going to set us up for success in conflict, for peacemaking instead of division and avoiding those pitfalls in all those areas. So if that sounds like something that you're interested in, check it out and message any friends that might be interested in that too. You can like and share and we thank you and wish you well. I can't help how I feel. How many people have heard that? It's a good one. That's a common one. That's a bold-faced lie. You know, bold-faced lie. Can't find that in scripture. If time heals all wounds, you know, imagine what direction can do with that. You know, if you can't help but how you feel, and yet somehow time heals all wounds, just time and chance, imagine what you can do with some direction with that. That's what God promises us. Not just salvation in the next life, but solutions and progress, sanctification, becoming more like Christ here in this life. And a part of that, debatably, most of that, is about changing how we feel about things, how we understand things on the inside, and the reaction that we have to that. A stream left to time alone, you know, cuts a deeper and wider channel in the same spot, muting or erasing its previous characteristics, you know, healing the wounds that have been caused by storms or whatever. But a stream with a little bit of dynamite, you know, some dunamis, can redirect its path entirely, leaving a dead, dry canyon in one spot and bringing life to another area. That's what we want to look like when we change those pathways of how we feel inside those neural pathways that have been carved throughout our whole life from our parents, from our culture, from the sin that we were born with. We don't have to live in that canyon. We can make a new canyon, and that's what God promises us. So be encouraged. You have control in your conflicts in this way. We don't have to respond in the way that we feel and be destined to that. That's not the hopeless life that we live. We have the power to change the way it feels and uh, how it turns out. Not, uh, we don't find that power in learning how to manipulate others and learning to leverage them as anybody in that Roman era a couple thousand years ago could have well told you all about. But we can find control in a different way. We can have the power to change the way it turns out in our lives. And in that way, we'll lose control of our life as you slowly destroy every place where you stumble into a conflict, you know. But instead, you have the power to control you through faith in God. And through this, your conflict is going to come into submission in God's order. Not that you know exactly all the details of what that new canyon is going to look like once the water starts flowing through it, you know. But... That's where the faith element comes in. That's where trust in God comes in, that giving him control in that process, in that redefinition, we can live in the life of blessing that will follow from that obedience 
and trust in God. This is the order that he designed for your relationships. Last week we talked a lot about the fear response and in uh, response to an anticipation of confrontation, right, where we have two things um, coming and striking together. Uh, but the next stage is another popular option for where to steer wrong, for where to be carving those channels in a way that is not healthy. And that is offense. It's both an instigator of confrontation and a response to confrontation. It goes both ways. Offense. Neither of them is it a good start, though. Offense, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, is a trap. He says in verse 7, 7 and 8, This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for unbelievers, it's a stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. I believe this is NASB. Um, this became the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense in that more literal translation rather than the NLT that we use all the time. It's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this they were also appointed. That is talking about Christ, right? Being the cornerstone for those of us who have faith and trust in that new direction. But a stumbling block for those who are set in their ways and unwilling to consider the new channel that God has presented. Right? The channel that God promised all along. And they just weren't able to see it. It's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for those people. Offense in that is scandalon in the Greek. Properly, it's the trigger of a trap. The mechanism closing a trap down on the unsuspecting victim. That's what that word, in its literal sense, offense is. The trigger of a trap. And figuratively, it's an offense uh, putting a negative cause and effect relationship into motion. So it's interesting, came across this last night, it's a, it's a trigger stick when I looked up the word. Like that's literally what that word scandal on is. And I just want to demonstrate to you what that looks like because it's awesome. So I pulled out some goodies here from uh, a certain backpacking trip that my Ember Watch homies will recognize. This is exactly the kind of trap that this language depicts, right? So you set this sucker up. Let's see if we can do it here because it's a very hairpin trigger which is another interesting part of the illustration. Let's see if we can get it without my tablet falling to its doom. And it's real sensitive, but it's real interesting because of that. Let's see, I think it goes like this. And this thing hooks here. Hmm, I don't know if this is gonna work for me. Normally you have like a rock, right? Uh, that is heavy and it's on dirt and stuff. I did this earlier on a different platform and it worked really well. And Gabe's trap even caught us something when we went on our trip. 
But this thing holds like this, okay? And you have this trigger stick that goes between the trap and under the rock that it goes on. Jeez, guys. But this is an interesting illustration because of how sensitive it is. This particular trap is called a Paiute deadfall. It was used by Native Americans. And this little stick wraps around here. If you talk to anybody that went on that Ember Watch trip, they will tell you that it takes a little bit to set these things up. But you have your trap set here. You have the stick and it holds. And when that stick is disturbed, it flips out of the way, and then this thing flips out, and then it smashes the animal. But this little stick here that holds there and you put bait on the middle of it, that's the trigger stick. That's a fence. That's what it is. And when the little animal comes along and takes the bait, and it goes, pink, and then the whole rest of the trap just comes apart and then you get smashed by a big rock, right? That's the illustration that we have for a fence. And if you think about the fruit that comes from that, it's a pretty great illustration. In fact, even the wind sets it off sometimes. You know, when you're trying to set these things up and you leave it for a couple hours, you come back, nothing took the bait. It's just the wind set it off because of the sensitivity of it. And that's the effectiveness of the trap, but are you the person that wants to be that trigger stick to set that into motion, to smash? That's not really the message we get from the gospel, is it, when we're dealing about with conflict with one another. It seems applicable in today's world especially. Offense means both the circumstance that will harm you in this case, and literally the trigger and the bait itself. So it's got the literal meaning of the trigger stick and then figuratively the circumstance that's going to bring you um, into harm's way. The Pharisees, for example, fell victim to this trap that God predicted centuries before. Even though they should have seen it coming, they were acting on their animal instinct, right? They took the bait that they should have been smarter smart enough to miss and to see the real point of those things. They were devout religious leaders, but their pride and consequently their offense was a trap of their own making. Jesus certainly didn't do anything wrong, right? It was their offense that was their own trap. But they were, um, they were there for that. They had the opportunity, but they were offended at every confrontation that they had with Christ. And at the very rumor of the truth that he preached. Jesus said some offensive things, no doubt about it. Things that were insulting, things that were pointed, things that were revealing about where they were at. Speaking to the truth of matters. Things that needed to be said to lead people in the right direction. But... Did the Pharisees have to be offended by those things? 
what they were doing, the Pharisees were doing, was offensive. It was offensive to God, and Jesus pointed that out, and that was painful for them. Did they have to choose to respond in an offended manner and take the bait from that stick? Did they have to hold on to that offense? You know, they could have even been offended and then come around. Over the course of years, they had ample opportunity to come around. But they didn't. They held on to that offense and allowed it to grow. The thing about offense, obviously, is that it depends on interpretation. We can choose to walk under that trap and play into that, you know, set it and, and get smashed by that sucker. Or you can steer clear and walk around it, navigate those scenarios. The reaction of offense is a dangerous game, which we can avoid by heeding the practical warnings of Scripture that are found all throughout. Just unimaginable amounts of wisdom and advice in there, even just in Proverbs alone, just thing after thing after thing. Jesus warns us about our increasing vulnerability to be triggered to offense and to be set against one another, setting traps for one another as we get into conflicts and confrontations. Matthew 24, 9, he warns about the last times that you will be arrested and persecuted and killed. You'll be hated all over the world because you are my followers, and many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. So people that were claiming Christ were turning away from him and starting to hate and betray one another. And many false prophets, it says in verse 11, will appear and deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. That was 24, 9 through 12. So there's going to be tough choices to make in this predicted world, as if there weren't already tough choices to make, you know? But there will be plenty more, and basic needs are going to be threatened, right? Not an easy scenario to navigate. And people are pushed to turn away and betray one another and hate one another. It's the same root word, interestingly enough, in the, root, in the form scandalizo. In our group, especially among the teens, we might translate that form of it as triggered. Not offended, not offense, but triggered. That's how that form of it is translated. As things are going to pot in the world, that's the scenario that we see. Um, you know, I don't know what that means, but I picture like circling a toilet. Like that's the imagery I get from that. Like things are just going toward a bad place. Um, things how are evolving to be um, so easily offended, so easily triggered. Offense at the very idea of truth, the very existence of truth even, right? And righteousness. Truth and righteousness um, are offensive, even now. And they will continue to get more and more. And there's going to be pressure for us to, to adopt some of those things, be taught some of those things, even in the church, to where we can potentially turn away from each other and hate and betray one another. Hate here is detesting someone by comparison. So if you recall the scripture uh, when Jesus talks about um, having to hate our mother and father in comparison to him. 
in what it looks like to follow Christ. That's what that word is. That's the form of hate there. Being, uh, detesting something by comparison. Choosing one thing over another. So, it means being ready to sacrifice anything if the choice is between that thing and following Christ. That's what that demand is. That's what that warning is. Being prepared to do that. Are you a person that when all these dynamics are into place, when the weight of that culture is in place, when offense is flaring, is that you? You know, that turns and chooses one thing over another and betrays another believer in the body. You probably think, nah, that ain't me. You know, because it's, it's a harsh question to consider. And it's an extreme question to consider. You might think, uh, my relationships are still intact, even through conflict. You know, I still, I still have decently good relationships, even through conflict. But ask the question in your conflicts, you know, do you let yourself be triggered and push away others to some extent in that process? Is that part of your process of conflict? How much solidarity do you maintain in your relationship with your brothers and sisters when it comes down to that difficult, sacrificial, vulnerable choice? When you're really getting into it and trying to figure out how to resolve your conflict. It's a choice to preserve you or the integrity of that intangible, you know, ethereal idea of relationship solidarity. It's a fine line and you know, when you're in the middle of a battle, sometimes these philosophical things and these symbolic um, compromises and stuff, they don't take front stage, you know? When you're looking for food and water and shelter, you're not thinking about art, right? It's the same thing in conflicts a lot of times. When you have a choice to preserve you, and that might be the internal, emotional, intellectual you, in that conversation, in that confrontation, do you choose you over relationship solidarity? In each conflict, do you allow a little spirit of division to persist? Are those little pieces going to add up over time? Because maybe they're not. Maybe, maybe there's no noticeable consequence right now. But if that's your pattern, are those pieces going to add up over time? You know, is that trap going to be slowly working its way out of stability? Is it going to be twisting and getting ready to spring? That offense. Maybe you can hold it together while allowing those periodic separations and weaknesses. Maybe your stick won't snap. Maybe it won't slip. But is your example going to be good enough to lead those children that just filed out of here? Is it going to be good enough to lead those children to form a body of such unity that no earth-crushing force will be able to split them apart, will be able to get them to turn on each other? When a lion comes into their flock of sheep, are they going to scatter? Or ours? We don't have too many lions around here a lot of times. Sometimes one comes prowling from time to time. But... What about the next generation? You know, when we don't have an airtight example and being able to teach them and demonstrate for them airtight solidarity. 
How confident are we going to be in that? Will we appear to run together away from a lion, you know, yet secretly you're making sure that you can run slightly faster than the person next to you because that's all it takes to survive, right? To not be the slowest one when the lion's after you. That's not solidarity, even though it can look like solidarity until the last point. Jesus warns that we'll be vulnerable to offense and subsequently betrayal. And betrayal is just denying the nature of something. Relationship. The nature of your relationship. Part of the same body. Protecting the weak parts. Right? That's how we are to be in relationship with one another. Proverbs 18, 19 says, An offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. You know, arguments separate friends like a gate locked with bars, like a big wall. <clears throat> Thinking of conflict as betrayal makes us lock those gates again, you know? And if we, if we don't operate as one unit and maintain that airtight solidarity when something threatens to divide us, when we put up those walls and stuff, how are we supposed to operate as a unit and protect the most vulnerable parts, and think about other people. When we have these walls in our way, when we have hindered access because we have to go through a gate, a locked gate, much less, you know, between us. We've got to figure these things out in our conflicts and confrontation with each other. I don't know if I wrote this down, but I read in some study that the average person has five conflicts a day, has five, like, confrontations a day. That's a decent amount. That's enough to add up. Better figure out how to handle those things so that our legacy is preserved, not to mention our own salvation and health in the body here. Now I get it, you know, we've all built walls and barred gates to survive out there. That's a thing. It's even how we're made to be to some extent. But shouldn't we be handing out keys, at the very least, to each person here? Among us, among the body, where we are supposed to take care of each other. We should have, like, underground passageways and, like, secret doors and stuff, at the very least. Nice, clear exit plan so that everybody gets out. Are those things built into your relationships? So that when you engage in confrontation, like, people have free access to be able to Come to reconciliation, you know, come back into solidarity. Locking people out, refusing to open up to them, that is a betrayal of the nature of our relationship. Even if you have been offended, it's still true. There is no provision in Scripture that says if somebody made you this mad, then you can hold back from them. You can hold back from your relationship with them. It says they should be forgiven 70 times 7, which I'm sure Adam will cover next time, next month, when we go over forgiveness, which is awesome because it's Easter. Oh, it's James? My bad. When James covers that, 
Yeah. It says in that scripture, the love of many will grow cold. Agape love. Selfless, unbreakable love, which only comes from God. Not phileo or storge, you know, not familial love or the, the love of chemistry, you know, like when you really want to hang out with somebody, when you just like mesh well together and, um, or your passion for like a certain hobby or art or something like that. Not that kind of love, but the selfless, unbreakable love. That will go, grow cold, and that's what we're going to be vulnerable to. Those strong walls, those castle walls, they're made of stone, and that is cold. I hate castles. They are so cold. Thankful to go in a couple of them in my life, but they are cold. Those stone walls, that is not how we're supposed to be. We're to be hospitable to one another. Let each other in, even in confrontation and conflict like this. Is this to say, though, that we can't get angry? No. We can get angry. Angry is a root emotion that is created by God, that's demonstrated by God many times. We can get angry. Ephesians 4 says, in verse 25 through 27, says, So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. The NASB translation says, be angry and yet do not sin. That's a more straightforward, literal translation of that. So anger is, just, is assumed to be natural and okay. But only the Holy Spirit should control us, not that anger. The anger is an indicator, it's a rude emotion, it's natural, but it's not what should control us. Offense almost by nature, control, gives control to that anger. Offense and anger, it shuts off our thinking brain, right? Just on a, on a chemical level. Like our primal and feeling brain takes over in that process. Our cortex and our prefrontal cortex and stuff, it like takes a back seat and says, okay, let's go by them feelings now. I can't help how I feel. I am angry and offended. And it is what it is. That's not true, and we need to reject that sinful narrative. Paul continues in 29 to 32. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but if there is any good word for edification, for building up, according to the need of the moment, say that so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All bitterness, wrath, anger, shouting, and slander must be removed from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Anger is a natural emotion, but taking and embracing offense is a choice. This is a choice to allow anger to be fueled, to make conflict ongoing. It's a choice to make conflict ongoing not to resolve and subdue that anger and control it. Let the Spirit direct it. Do you notice in that passage there are two angers? Be angry, but don't sin. And then later on, anger is in the list of things to avoid being. It's a little confusing. Caught my eye. I was like, what the heck is this? 
The first one, be angry, but don't sin, is to be morally convicted in conflict. That's good. We need to have our conscience active in that way and to be discerning and sensitive and judging one another so that we uphold the holiness of the body, right? That's part of our job between believers, to gently and humbly help each other back on to a righteous path. Be morally convicted in conflict. But the second one is a sustained opposition held against a moral conflict. That's the nature of it, a sustained opposition. It seems reasonable, you know, that it would flow from that, like to be angry and then to, to keep being angry at something that's morally wrong. Yet God doesn't want this for us. We are to resolve our differences. And in a lot of cases, especially when it comes to personal offense, injustice against us, to be able to forgive and to get over those things. Being rid of malice and all the rest with compassion and forgiveness, um, forgiveness coming next month, that's what we're supposed to do, to get rid of that type of anger along with all those other negative emotions. Bitterness, which is very much an internal holding on of anger, right? Bitterness and wrath. Anger, shouting, slander, all malice. <clears throat> so we're supposed to have a moral position, but not hold on to it at the expense of solidarity. Instead, push for reconciliation and figure that out so that we can get rid of that anger. Maybe you conceal unproductive thoughts about the person you're in conflict with. You know, some people just don't easily go together. They don't have that chemistry. They don't have that easy, like, phileo love. That doesn't mean that we're not called to solidarity with that person and to be able to figure that out, to build those gates in our wall, to build those cool secret tunnels where we can meet. Maybe you conceal those unproductive thoughts about them or the relationship. Maybe they aren't actually concealed very well, right? And little passive-aggressive remarks leak out. Or taking little innocent shots in conflict or in joking and stuff and something that's even unrelated. You know, there's lots of things where our, our feelings leak out, right? And we're warned about that, that the tongue reveals the heart. What are we going to do about that? Maybe the same basic issues arise over and over. You have all these little warnings that show you that there are some cues that uh, require attention. Cues that tell you that something needs fixing. Anger is a heavy emotional experience. And sometimes we resolve anger, but we come out with a sense of loss on the backside of that too. You know, because we've made a sacrifice to where we have some pain that we're dealing with. What does that look like? Sometimes we resolve anger, but come out with a sense of loss. 
maybe a subdued anger, like a, a subtle resentment that's still lingering with that too. And that sets us up for our next trigger with this loss. We view, we're supposed to view resolution as a, a living sacrifice, right? Something that is continual, something that's expected, not a loss to us. That's a false narrative when we have to sacrifice to maintain solidarity. That is a lie. God is glorified when we make peace. Is that a loss? Is that something we should consider a loss? What's your end goal? You know, to look awesome and to maintain all those points that you want to get across or maintain your positions and personal integrity and looking correct or whatever it is? Or do you want to glorify God? They're often incompatible. We have to accept that. That's why we are told to die to self. You know, that's another way to put it. To deal with this loss. Conflict often has to be resolved by giving up something, and that something may be emotional, like the source of your offense, that injustice. That is an emotional loss that you have to take sometimes. And that process is called grace. Like That is a huge part of what God is explaining to us in the concept of grace and his demonstration of grace. God exampled it with the life of Christ and his death. Does that mean that you're getting the short end of the stick in resolution? You know, if you have to take a loss and make a sacrifice in that way, an emotional sacrifice that's difficult to deal with in that moment. Not at all. It's a false narrative to think that you're getting the short end of the stick. Because, first of all, the stick's not limited. God can give you some more stick if he wants to, and he's going to provide for you, right? But say the stick does have a certain length to it, and you get the short end of the stick. You get this little bit over here. When you take that, and you take that in faith, that God will provide, the rest of this stick is in heaven, right? You got your little stick under the line, and the rest of it's in heaven there waiting for you. That's our promise. That's how it works. Like, you get the short end of the stick here on earth, you get the long end of the stick in heaven. And the shorter the end of your stick here on earth, the more sacrifice you go through as somebody's persecuting you, but you're fighting for the truth, you're fighting for whatever moral value that is God's that you're upholding to maintain the sanctity of the church, to maintain solidarity in the church, and to do that, you have to take a personal hit somehow. That's storing up that in heaven. You don't just, you don't see the whole picture of the stick, but we're told where it is. And that means something to us. That's what it means when Christ teaches that our reward is kept in heaven. Hebrews 10, 9-12 says that we are confident that you are meant for better things. Things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope 
will come true. What you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. It's an interesting conclusion to that. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. That's the scenario where we become vulnerable to being separated, to turning on each other. When we become spiritually dull and we don't see the significance in our solidarity and how that warrants sacrifice and how God gets the glory from that. We have to have a spiritual, sharp understanding of our conflicts and confrontations to be able to recognize that. Be prepared to let it go in your conflicts. Be prepared to accept that loss with joy, not with bitterness and resentment, holding on to that conflict. The Bible doesn't encourage you to interpret a sense of loss, but instead a confident hope of reward instead, that God will not forget. So we have to count the immediate cost and view it appropriately in our confrontations. That being said, you know, it's not easy. It takes discipline. Takes training, takes behavioral change, things that you've been doing your whole life, right? Just like a military unit is trained to respond appropriately, effectively, and safely in a moment of extreme and often unexpected stress, danger, mortal danger, we have to do the same thing. We have to be trained in these spiritual ways of processing and train our body to act in a certain way, to not have that limbic response where we pull out of the thinking part of our brain and embrace the feeling part of our brain. We have to train ourselves to be calm and to be at peace, to have our helmet of salvation on and understand that we are safe in that. Just like a military unit, trained in that way so that we don't respond like your average civilian of the world. But we have self-control instead. The last element of the fruit of the Spirit, the capstone. Even if you feel differently on the inside, controlling the outside is important. Don't feel like you're being inauthentic, you know, because you have all this turmoil of feelings that are sinful on the inside. Uh, Don't feel like you're being inauthentic if you change what you're doing on the outside. Because that's part of submission to God. Like, God knows that we're not perfect. God very much knows that we have all this stupid stuff going on on the inside that maybe nobody else can tell because you're a really good hider. He knows all that's there. That doesn't mean that we're not called to obedience and submission in that way. And in that way, we show where our real faith lies. We show where our real priorities lie. And God honors that, because you can't do that without a real faith. Ask the Spirit to change that. So even if you feel differently on the inside, controlling the outside is important. As we heard earlier, do not sin in your anger. That's what that means. There's anger on the inside, but don't sin in it. Don't do sinful things on the outside while you figure that out on the inside. And while you figure it out on the inside, conform the outside to God's standard. And guess what? That is going to help you fix the inside, too. Because that's how it works with us. Things always work both ways. You know, the body chemistry makes us depressed or angry or whatever. But when you're angry or depressed, it also changes your body chemistry. It's a cycle of things. And so 
when you change your behavior, that also changes the inside. I'm sure that's part of God's design in the process of sanctification and submitting to him in those ways. But obviously, prayer is a huge element of that as you go through those things, for God to change you on the inside while you're working on the outside. So there's a lot of things we can consider, you know, that are just outer things that the Bible advises on. Tons of stuff in Proverbs. So we're just going to hit a few of those for practical significance of things to contemplate that we can control so we don't sin in our anger when we get into confrontation. So we can train our bodies to react in a way that's appropriate. Things like basic stuff, right? Controlling your voice. Tongue is a powerful tool. But control your voice. So that means lower your voice. If you get into conflicts and your voice starts getting a little higher and a little higher, start pushing that, get more body behind that voice. Maybe you're not yelling, you know? Maybe you're really laying that body of that voice in there. I don't know. These tone is a complex thing. Look at the fruit of it, right? What is the fruit of it showing? So lower your voice, as it says in you know, Proverbs 15, <clears throat> 1 and 18, and Ecclesiastes 9:17 says, don't speak so quickly, or fast-paced. Uh, yeah, Proverbs 29, 11 speaks to that one. Uh, yeah, let's look some of that up, because I don't have that right now. So Proverbs 29, if you want to turn there with me. Fools vent their anger, but the wise quietly hold it back. Fools vent their anger, but the wise quietly hold it back. Venting your anger, you know, it feels good. Actually, I think we had a conversation about that maybe last week in cell group uh, upstairs. But it doesn't have good fruit, you know. If you're wise, you hold back that anger, even if you feel it inside. Thomas Jefferson said, count to ten if you're angry, or a hundred if you're super angry, before you address something. Let that fire burn down to a good, solid ember, at least, before you address that. You know, James says, be slow to speak. It's good advice. Ecclesiastes 10.4 talks about if somebody is mad at you. Let's check that out. Ecclesiastes 10.4. says, if your boss is angry at you, don't quit. A quiet spirit can overcome even great mistakes. How many people quit in a rage of offense? A lot. Obviously, this doesn't just mean your boss. It can mean a conversation with your parents. It can mean, you know, with your pastor. 
talking about something that's going on in your life, a friend, you know, coming at you on an authoritative basis. Maybe they have some scripture that they're bringing at you that they think is useful and it conflicts with what you got going on in your life. Yeah, if somebody's mad at you, try that. Try an outward, quiet spirit and see how that works to overcome your mistakes instead of deciding to take up arms and fighting back. I want to challenge you on that one to try it out. And you'll see immediate results on that. If somebody comes at you angry, come at them with a, I don't want to say unnaturally quiet, but come at them with a definitively quiet spirit. And see what happens to their anger. You know, and think back to those times where somebody comes at you angry and then you respond angry. See what happens to that. What is the fruit of those conflicts? And give you a solid promise that it's going to turn out better for you if you come at that with a quiet spirit. More interestingly than that, even, if you are in a conflict, say you haven't been fully trained as your military operational unit yet, right? And somebody comes at you with that stressful situation and you respond in kind, you're not controlled and collected with a quiet spirit acting in a calculated and peaceful manner or whatever, but you panic and you start engaging them in that offense, you know? They trip their stick, you trip your stick, everybody's getting smashed. Change your demeanor. Go from angry to a quiet spirit. It is the most interesting thing that even in the middle of a conflict, if you change your spirit, the entire thing can change tone in a matter of two seconds. Try it. It's very interesting. God's wisdom don't lie. So in that same vein, we're supposed to listen more than we talk, right? As James advises again in chapter 1. In Proverbs 13, 12, 13 says, The wicked are trapped by their own words, but the godly escape such trouble. Again, that harkens back to that imagery of getting trapped in your own offense. You know, the wicked get offended and mad and angry, and the sin comes out, and then they're trapped by that. Not just the original conflict, but how they handle it then gets them into trouble. That should not be us. <clears throat> but the godly escape such trouble, is what that says in 12.13 of Proverbs. The godly escape such trouble, as we should. Try to have a positive focus, right? Not just be peaceful, not just not be angry, but listen for the emotion behind the words. Like, if somebody comes at you angry, or if you start the confrontation and, and things are expressed, like, listen for not just the content of the words, but the emotion behind the words, you know? Be sensitive to that. Have that emotional intelligence and grow that. Check that out. Proverbs 14.10 speaks to it. It says, Each heart knows its own bitterness, and no one else can fully share its joy. You know? 
it's not plain for everybody to know. Each person knows their own bitterness in their heart. And if you're in conflict and you sense something like that, ask about it. You know, open up those doors and pathways between one another. Seek to understand before seeking to be understood. As it demonstrates in Proverbs 18.13, spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. Seek to understand first. Otherwise, you're going to sin, you're going to shame yourself, and you're going to look dumb. I know that when two people are looking equally dumb together, it seems less bad somehow, but it's not. It's more ugly. Proverbs 12.18 says, Some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. Again, peacemakers, right? Choose your words carefully. So do you see patterns in your life that span into different relationships and different types of confrontation? You know, taking some of those examples, there's plenty, plenty more, I'm sure. Do you see patterns in your life that span into different relationships and different types of confrontation? This is some basic, useful, analytical skills here, right? What's the common factor in these things? If you see patterns across your life, across relationships, the common factor is probably you, right? And that's something to look at. Change you, establish self-control for you, take biblical wisdom for you, not worry about the other person, be ready to count that cost and push out that bitterness, control the sin that wants to come out from that anger, change you, and you'll have 50% less to reconcile back into unity and solidarity. Even less, probably. Because controlling yourself is going to set up the other person to succeed easier too, right? If you get into a confrontation and you quiet your spirit, and then that causes the other person to back off on their alarms, they're backing off from whatever, DEFCON 5 to DEFCON 3, I don't, I don't even know which way it goes, but the nuclear, the nuclear warning thing, like back off on the alert level, that's going to not only reduce the sin that you have to reconcile, but it's going to reduce the other person's sin too. That's what we want. That's what we want in being peacemakers, in securing our solidarity together, establishing pathways, and having that united body where we see ourselves as one unit and taking care of one another. That's how peacemaking starts with momentum. So we need to properly control and process our feelings of anger and of loss as we engage in confrontation. And for whatever reason that we may have to react in a way which causes walls and locked gates and division, we need to count it as sin and control that behavior. Apart from all the reasonings behind it, we need to control that behavior. Psalm 139 19 through 24, David expresses this. O oh God, if only you would destroy the wicked, get out of my life, you murderers. These are literal murderers, you know? Get out of my life, you murderers. They blaspheme you. Your enemies misuse your name. O oh Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? 
Yes, I hate them with total hatred, for your enemies are my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you, and lead me along the path of everlasting life. David understood the moral issues involved. He understood that there are bad people, rampant sin out in the world, and he wrestled with the truth of them and what that meant for them and their relationship with God. He was bothered with that. He wrestled with his position of moral opposition to those conflicts. But he also asked God to search his own heart and his own feelings in that process. That in this mix, that mix of strong emotions and moral convictions, that he didn't sin as well. You know how... Suppressing the truth brings the illustration of holding something underwater, like we've talked about in Romans 1, where people suppress the truth of God, turn to their own ways. Well, it's time to suppress something else, and that's your offense. Hold that sin underwater, baptize it, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Kill it dead and give it a new life. Suppress your sin, your sustained anger, your knee-jerk opinion, your insecurity and fear and loss, your offense, your righteous indignation. Baptize it and give, it, give your moral conviction new life in service to God. Build that solidarity which God desires among us so that when things get rough, we stay exactly how God intends this body to be. And we ensure that for all those kids downstairs. Let's listen to some questions and break into cell groups. So, how can you subdue your triggers? How can you subdue your triggers and your offense as it rears its ugly head in your confrontations? Number two, how do you handle your sense of loss in confrontation? How do you handle that sense of loss when you feel like an injustice is done to you? Or that you're having to deny a part of yourself in order to push for reconciliation and solidarity. And third, so repeat number two again, how do you handle your sense of loss in confrontation? And then number three, what are your biggest self-control issues in regard to your visible reactions during confrontation? Those mechanics, those social mechanics that, you know, Maybe they reveal what's going on in your heart, but regardless, just what are your biggest self-control issues in regard to your visible reactions in confrontation?